Thanks for checking out this message from Radiant Life Church. Grab your Bible, a pad of paper, and a pen. Let's dive in. Good morning. Good to see you, church family. Good to be here with you. If you're a guest, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we've been in a teaching series called Awaken, and we're going through the book of Acts And it's basically after Jesus' resurrection and just really the birth of the church. And last, we're going to pick up where Pastor Josh left off last week in Acts chapter 6. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground here this morning. We're going to pick up in chapter 6 of Acts and we're going to go through the entire chapter 7 of Acts. And uh, I, the staff was asking, hey, how can we pray for you? And my prayer was, I'm going to go really fast, and I'm afraid that I'm going to lose some people. So if you're a note taker, like, um, don't get hung up on, like, you can always watch the recording, right? Like, you can always go back, but don't get hung up on writing every little thing, or you can take a picture or something and go back to it. But we're going to go at a pretty sturdy pace today. Are you guys ready for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like uh, it could blow our hair back. You want your hair blown back? And some of you are like, I'm still waking up. Like, keep the coffee coming. Like, I, uh, so we're all over the place when it comes to that, being ready and wanting to go fast. But I, I hope to, to keep you like all together uh, as we, we, we cover a ton of ground. So today's uh, teaching is called Full Resisting and Full, and I think that will make more sense as we kind of cover all of this ground from Acts chapter 6 all the way through Acts 7. So we're going to pick up right where Pastor Josh left off. Remember there was the laying of the hands, like uh, the apostles uh, were trying to help out with the Hellenistic Jews who kind of felt like they were being left out. There was a laying of hands, and they were looking for someone to, to wait tables, but it was actually a really high standard for waiting tables, right? You need to be full of the spirit and you need to have wisdom. And so there's a lot of gravity to that. And then we're given a list of names and we're going to hear about this guy, Stephen, and we're going to pick back up with Stephen. So Acts chapter six, starting at verse eight. Now, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. All right, we got to pause. We got a ton of ground to cover, but there's a couple of key things that we need to pick up here. Luke gives us a major detail here, right? And we, we're, we already knew this, that Stephen, he is full of grace and power. So the question is, what are you full of? Now, maybe you've been told what you're full of. But what are you full of? So let me rephrase the question. Let's look at it a little bit differently. Do people want to be around you? Are you so full of God's presence and his Holy Spirit that you are so full of compassion and gentleness and joy that people want to be around you? So what are you full of? And do people want to be around you because you are filled with the presence of God? All right, let's continue. Uh, it says that Stephen did wonders and signs. And I think this is awesome, right? Like, I would imagine there was some healing. Uh, people were released from torment. And I think it's easy to look at signs and wonders as stained glass. 
Like it's this beautiful thing that we can look at and admire, but I don't think that's how God intended it. I think it's more supposed to be like clear glass. Yes, we can see the signs and wonders, but do we see through the signs and wonders to the creator of the signs and wonders? Are you tracking with me? It has nothing to do with Stephen and the signs and wonders. It's about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in his life and the signs and wonders. We should be able to see through those to see the creator of the universe. All right, let's continue. All right. Opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen Synagogue. All right, let's pause for a second. How many people know that there's Bible encyclopedias? That's okay, a few of you. That's awesome. Like, I, I was kind of assuming most people didn't. Like, we're going to nerd out for just like two seconds here. You can go Google search Bible encyclopedias. I'm going to grab an expert uh, on this. Um, Baker, the Baker Encyclopedia says members of the Jewish synagogue in Jerusalem in Acts 9 are descendants from Jews who had been captured and taken to Rome by the general Pompey in 106 to 48. I love this. Check this out. Pompey found that the Jews adhered so strictly to their religious and national customs that they were worthless as slaves. Like they were so stuck to their Bible, what we would call the Older Testament in our Bible. They were so stuck to the customs of Moses that they were worthless as slaves. Now keep that in the back of your mind as we continue in the narrative. All right, so they're, they're the Freedom Synagogue composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicily. All right, now we have to nerd out on this as well. If you were to fast forward in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, verse 39, let's find out who's from this area. It's this guy named Paul. Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Sicilia. So we know, as we read further in Acts, that Paul is from this area. So Luke puts this detail in there. So we get about this freedom synagogue, and they're just so stuck and rigid in their customs and their traditions. But we also see that there's a group of people, and Paul, which we're going to see play out in uh, Acts 7, we're going to see that he was there as well. Let's continue with the narrative. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan introduced this image. This is an image of what the Sanhedrin would look like. So Stephen would be standing right in the middle of the Sanhedrin in this place. And then they continue with their uh, allegations. Uh, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. They're talking about the temple. They're just accusing him that, oh, they're gonna destroy the temple, even Jesus. I mean, we could go back in the gospels and see him quoting this and change the customs that Moses handed down. So they're worried about this location, this place, and they're worried about traditions that come from Moses. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I find this fascinating. I think there's a ton of illusions. You know, they're, they're talking about how they're messing up, uh, how Stephen is messing up the, 
the, the traditions of Moses. But this reminds me of a story about Moses. Check this out in Exodus 34. It says, as Moses descended from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, the 10 commandments, in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that his skin of his face shone as a result of speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Interesting. I wonder where else I've heard this. Gospel of Mark and Jesus and the, the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no laundry on earth could whiten them. Not even the best Clorox bleach could make these as white as what Jesus was in that moment. And I just find that absolutely fascinating that we see all of these illusions, things that God has used. And so really to kind of sum up all these accusations, they were blaming Stephen of blasphemy of God. They were saying, hey, he, like, he wants to destroy the temple or this Jesus of Nazareth. He wants to destroy the temple. And man, he is jacking up the traditions of Moses. And then you flip the page or you look a little bit further down and there's Acts chapter seven. Now we're not gonna cover the entire teaching that Stephen does. Three quarters of this chapter is Stephen doing a teaching. Kind of, you know, you, you've accused me of these things. Let me tell you what the actual truth is. And man, it, it almost can look like a history lesson if you kind of look at it. Like he'll mention Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, that's where God made a covenant and a promise with Abraham. And from Abraham are all the descendants. Like the lineage of the Jewish people all goes back to Abraham in this covenant that God made with him. And he just lays this all out. Like he talks about how the temple wasn't just in one location. You can't box God into this tent. It's always moving. And so he was trying to explain this, help them understand their scriptures. Now, the commentary, the message on Acts written by John Stott, he kind of sums it up this way. He says, what he did was not just to rehearse the salient features of the Old Testament story with which the Sanhedrin were as familiar as he but to do so in such a way as to draw lessons from it, which they had never heard or even noticed. His concern was to demonstrate that his position, far from being blasphemous because disrespected God's word, he actually honored it. John continues, he says, for Old Testament scripture itself confirmed his teaching about the temple and the law and especially the predicting of the Messiah, whereas by rejecting him, it was they who disregarded the law, not he. Stephen's mind had evidently soaked up the Old Testament for his speech is like a patchwork of illusion to it. I find that fascinating. I love that language that he used. But here's a challenge for us, friends. Like, do we spend so much time in God's word, like, like where we're soaking it up? And then when we have conversations with people, is there allusions to what we have read in God's word? 
Like when you're at the coffee shop or at a restaurant or whatever, like is there illusions in your conversations that you have with other people? Have we soaked so much in this that we can't help but to overflow what we've had? And that's exactly what Stephen did. He, he took their scriptures and he actually presented them the way that they were supposed to be presented. It wasn't about a temple Like, if God's temple was destroyed, that doesn't mean that God's presence is destroyed. It's everywhere. The curtain was torn. God was going around with a pillow of fire in a a cloud. Like, God wasn't limited, and they had put God into a box. And then, he, he goes through this whole teaching. He tries to help them understand their scriptures, and then he just, he drops the bomb here. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you also. Like, I feel uncomfortable reading those words. Like, there is a ton of truth. You know, and we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit here at Radiant Life. In fact, last week, like there was a, a laying of hands that happened here and inviting the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, commissioning you. But man, like here's a question to wrestle with. Like, are you resisting Holy Spirit still? Are you resisting Holy Spirit? Stephen continues. He says, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Oh, man. Like, he is bringing a really hard truth. And now we see what their response is. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. I have no idea what gnashing a teeth looks like. But Stephen, full... Full of what? Full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't know what this scene looked like. I don't know if it's like God just like rolled back the curtains of heaven and he just had this this glimpse or if he was daydreaming. I, I don't know what this looked like. He got to see a glimpse into heaven. And what I find interesting that Luke puts this little detail in there is that Jesus is standing. Most of the time when we see in the scripture, we read that Jesus is sitting next to the Father. But in this particular instance, he's standing. And I wonder, this is just my holy imagination, that Stephen is standing before this religious elite. And he's confessing and he's teaching. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus. And I'm wondering if Jesus is standing on behalf of Stephen and saying that to the Father. Just an interesting detail that I kind of was pondering. And then the religious elite, they yelled at the top of their voices and covered their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. So they weren't even listen, they, they, they weren't even willing to listen. They're like, ah, la, 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 la. Like, we're not going to hear what you have to say. And they, 
they, they dragged him out of the city because in Roman law at the time, who's in control, they would not allow capital punishment to happen. So really, this is a scene of a lynching on Stephen. They're literally dragging him out. This was against even the Roman law for them to go out. And they laid their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. Now, if you are to read ahead in the narrative, we learn that Saul has a crazy encounter with Jesus. And then from there on out, he's called Paul. So Paul and people from his region were here at this moment while Stephen was being stoned. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I find this fascinating. The same author, the same author that wrote this in the book of Acts also wrote one of our gospels, Luke, and he penned this words of Jesus when he was nailed on the cross. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. I just, the, the parallels are just so obvious when you, when you see them and you begin to intake God's word. And while they were still stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. And I think that's Luke's way of kind of making this a, a PG version. There was nothing glamorous. There was nothing uh, neat and tidy about Stephen being stoned. They were literally throwing rocks at him until he died. And while this is happening, he says, hey, don't hold this sin against them. And we're gonna talk about that here in a minute. So now that we've covered all of this narrative, how do we actually make this practical in our life? Like how do we allow transformation to happen? So if you're a note taker, I'm gonna give you four B's that we get from Stephen. These are four practical things that we can do based on Stephen's life in the narrative. The first is be a servant. Be a servant. Like if you were to go back to Acts 6, right? It was all about the serving of the tables. You need to be filled with the Spirit. There needs to be a, a level of wisdom. And Stephen is mentioned in that list. We know that Stephen was a servant. He had a servant's heart. Even Jesus talked about this. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, he talked about this. I mean, you, you can spend a significant amount of time in looking at the scriptures and it talks about our heart and how we need to be servants. But I love how all, a lot of our newer Testament letters open up. So Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ. Then you have James, a half-brother Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, says a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then we have Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Service is all throughout scripture. So the question for us to wrestle with here today is, how can I be a servant 
where I live, work, and play. Husbands, how can you be a servant in your household? We don't have wives and children to serve us. How can we model this idea of service within the household? What does it look like to serve at work? Not have the attitude of, I deserve this, I deserve this much. What, does it hap- what happens when we have that shift in our mind where we realize that we're there to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who provided the job to begin with? How do we go into our workplace with the mindset that I'm here to serve other people here today? And what does this look like where you play? I mean, for me, I love to play disc golf. I, we have a beautiful course at Cade Lake. But what does it look like out on the course and maybe there's a piece of trash that's on the ground. You can pick up the piece of trash and throw it in the trash can. Full transparency, honestly. Like, this is raw. Like, the flesh of me, like, wants to make a big deal out of that. Hey, look at me. I picked up this piece of trash. I'm really helping out everybody here at the course. Like, that's my attitude. That's the flesh that I wrestle with. I don't know if you wrestle with those things, but do we have that service mindset? How do we be a servant? All right, the second B, be a witness. Or maybe a couple other ways to say that is be a a storyteller. How can you begin to, to share your story? I mean, Stephen, we, we, we just read, like, he was a witness. He went through the Sanhedrin scriptures, and God just shined his light through the Holy Spirit, through Stephen, and he was a witness even to the Sanhedrin. But one of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 4, there's this awesome story about the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4 Verse 27, it says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into the town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and made their way to him. Now we don't have time to unpack this whole story, but we'll just say this woman had a reputation. Like when she says, hey, come see the man that told everything about me. And they were like, hey, we saw your social media. We saw what you did on spring break. Like that is cray cray. Like you, like, you probably shouldn't have posted that. Like that's, that's not good. Like people knew who she was. Please hear this. You are not defined by your story. God wants to redeem your story. It didn't matter what her past was or what her spring break was. God used that. Come, see the man. And what did they do? They left the town and made their way to him. It didn't matter what her life was before Jesus. What mattered now was Jesus and moving forward. We need to wrestle with that, friends. It doesn't matter what your past is, what bad decisions you've made, all the regret that you're carrying. All of those things don't matter. What matters is you now with Jesus and moving forward, amen? You are not defined by your past. You are defined by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I love this. 
Revelation 12, 11. They conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, who's Jesus, and by the word of their testimony, their story. What does it look like for us? Oh man, I hope that you catch this. We can be a witness. We can share our story. We can give our testimony. However you want to massage that, we can talk about Jesus. And it's about Jesus and how he's redeemed our story. It doesn't matter whether your testimony was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or you grew up in the church and you were a good kid. God can use all of it. So how can we be a witness where we live, work, and play? You know, since surrendering my life over to Jesus, there has not been one work environment where I have not witnessed or shared my story or given a testimony about Jesus. Single mom, or not well, single moms and stay-at-home moms. Like, you're being a witness to your children. What about in the workplace? I want to press in just a little bit right here. I just want to challenge just a little bit. Are you scared to talk about Jesus in your workplace? I mean, I worked for Sturgis Public Schools. That did not prevent me from talking about Jesus with my coworkers. That did not prevent me from praying with some coworkers. God provided the job anyways. If I was going to get fired for sharing my faith, I would consider that great joy. But God's going to provide the next opportunity and the next job for me. How can we be a witness where we work, live, and play? How can we be a witness? How can you share your story? How can you give a testimony where you work, live, and play? Now the third B, and this could be maybe the most challenging one, is be a forgiving disciple. Be a forgiving follower of Jesus. I mean, go back to the narrative that we just read. Do not hold this sin against them. He's literally saying that as they're throwing stones and killing him. He's saying that. And we could, we could take a whole hour just talking about forgiveness. And I'm just trying to introduce this concept. I'm just trying to give space for Holy Spirit to do something in your heart and your mind. Pastor, teacher, author, John Mark Comer, he talks about this idea of forgiveness. He says, the question isn't, how do you get through life without being hurt? Not gonna happen. The question is, when you are hurt, how do you deal with it? Forgiveness is not just releasing the right to pay back who has hurt you. It's also absorbing the pain with God's help. You know, God forgives as far as the east is from the west. And if you sit and think about that, that's a really far, that's far away. But for us humans, we can't just forget. I think that whole forgive and forget thing, I think that's a myth. But what does it look like, not in our own strength, not in our own will, to begin to absorb some of this hurt? I think John Mark Comer hit it. With God's help, I would argue with Christian counseling, in biblical community, these are places that we can begin to process that hurt. Because if we don't transform it, we're going to transmit it. We're just gonna transmit it. I'll give you an example. 
from my own life where uh, the Lord just really did a number on me. Uh, I, I was one of the pastors at a church and I basically got fired from that church. Now, they would probably say uh, they didn't fire me and what they did was they offered me uh, an unpaid volunteer position. So call it potato, potato, however you want to look at that situation. But I had a ton of anger going on inside of it. It's like someone just pulled the rug out from underneath me. And I had so much anger and bitterness towards my pastor. I was so disappointed that he didn't stand up and fight for me in that moment. And, and I had all this bitterness and this rage and this anger. And the pro- I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I'm angry and when I'm upset and bitter, I actually take it on the people I love the most. My wife and my kids, they get the brunt of it and they had nothing to do with it. And so I transmit all of this stuff and it's always on to the people I love the most. And so uh, through Christian counseling and Holy Spirit, I was encouraged, and I'm just gonna get, this is a real practical way. I'm not saying like maybe this is a thing that you can use when it comes to forgiving someone. But for me, I had to write a letter. And I think the beauty about writing a letter is you can erase it, you can retype it, uh, you can redo it, where with words, once they're out, they're out. You can't put toothpaste back into the tube, right? And so, I was able to rewrite that and I was able to really work on specifically what was upsetting to me and how I was hurt. And I put it in an envelope, I addressed it and I stamped it. But Holy Spirit did something inside of me really deep into my, in my heart. And it wasn't like an audible voice, but it was kind of like, hey, if you mail this, like you, you need to let go of some stuff. And so I sat on that envelope for like six months because I knew when I put it in the mailbox, like there, there needed to be a release and I wasn't ready to release it. I was still harboring a lot of that inside of me. And then finally, Holy Spirit, he just kept doing what he does. I had people that were speaking life into me and finally I dropped it in one of those blue mailboxes. I kid you not. It was like a couple weeks later, the Lord tested me in that. Um, a student that we were ministering to who we just absolutely loved dearly, her father passed away unexpectedly. And my wife and I were just deeply convicted to, to go love on her and her mom. And we wanted to go to that funeral. But I knew that my former pastor was going to be there. So it's almost like, oh, you dropped that in there? You said you let that go? Okay, let's test it. Now, I'm not saying that God caused my my friend's dad to die, but God uses circumstances like that. He can use the death of a loved one to minister to you. That's what God does. He turns stuff upside down all the time. So I go to the funeral, and I went in there fully expected. Like, in my heart, I was ready to hug him. Because the things that I had said, like, I, I, I hope that God uses you. I hope that the ministry flourishes. Like, I I genuinely wanted those things to happen in my former pastor's life. And I was prepared to give him a hug and to embrace him. And I thought, for me, like that hug, 
Like that was going to be the thing. That was going to be like this standing stone in this moment that represented that God stepped into this situation. And he did show up. Now, I can't report that we talked or hugged or anything like that. But I was prepared in my heart of hearts for that moment. So I share that story as an example. Maybe, like, maybe a lot of us are playing this thing in our head right now that we were hurt. And I'm not trying to minimize that pain and that hurt in your life. Please hear me on that. I'm not minimizing it. But how do we begin to transform that? How do we begin to respond to it instead of react to it every time that memory comes back? Now, Paul, who we know was at this stoning of Stephen, and as we read further, has this encounter with Jesus, radically changes his life, and he plants churches all over the place, wrote a large portion of our Newer Testament, he understood the importance of forgiveness. And he wrote to the church in Ephesus, and we find this in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 through 32. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. I mean, we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. I think it's a whole nother thing to grieve the Holy Spirit. So I would encourage you as much as possible, stay away from grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul's very practical. He says, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. What are you transmitting? What needs to be transformed in your life when it comes to forgiveness? Because the flip side is be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. I think it's easy to look at the circumstance that we're in where we've been wronged, we've been hurt. Once again, I'm not trying to minimize that. But what if we were to pull the lens back? And what if we were to look on our own life at the forgiveness that we've received? That malintent that you had in your mind towards that other person. The evil things that you actually thought. The things that you thought about while you were driving down the road for that other person. Did God forgive you in those moments? Because he can see right into the heart. And I think when we begin to kind of pull that lens back and we realize how much God has forgiven us, I think that makes it just a little bit easier, just a tad easier to forgive other people. So question, what is your next step in forgiveness? We could spend a whole hour talking about this, but I just want to introduce this concept because Stephen, he modeled that. He's literally doing it while they were murdering him. All right, the final and fourth B. Be a a hopeful person. Be a hopeful disciple. Be a hopeful apprentice of Jesus. We have the greatest message ever spoken, amen? We have hope in the eternity to come. That when we take our last breath, that's not it. We can spend eternity with the creator of the universe. Check this out in Psalm 33, starting at verse 17. The horse is a false hope for safety, 
It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. Pause. Last week, I told you to Google search Hesed. Everybody say Hesed. Here it is again. Like, I'm telling you, Google search, what does the Bible mean when it comes to Hesed? H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. I'm telling you, there's so much depth to it. It said, those who depend on his Hesed love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in the famine. We can try to put all the safety measures out. We can try to have all these world things, and that is a false hope right? Like we can collect as many guns as possible, but in the end, it's not going to really matter. Now, if there was a zombie apocalypse, I do have some friends that have a lot of guns. I probably would try to go to their house in that event. But do we put, like, do we, like, don't miss this with the joke, right? Like, don't miss this. Do we have a false hope in these worldly things that are around us? Like, do we accumulate? Do we collect? Do we have all of these things? And ultimately, it is just a false hope. When you take your last breath, that thing isn't gonna matter anymore. The psalmist continues, for we what with the Lord? We wait. We wait for the Lord. I hate waiting. Man, I hate waiting. We ordered food last night. We did one of those where like you can order ahead then you go park in the spot and they bring the food out to you sort of thing. And then uh, my daughter came home because she was at some friend's house and I didn't order any food for her. And so I said, hey, I'll get you some Taco Bell because she loves Taco Bell. And so I'm driving to go pick up my food and I pull into Taco Bell and there's literally four cars in the line. I'm like, seriously, I do not want to wait. So I pull all the way around, I go pick up my food. I'm like, those cars will be through and I come back. And so I'm turning left into Taco Bell and I saw there was no one in the drive-through line. I kid you not, four cars pulled in right in front of me trying to go into Taco Bell. (laughs) I'm not making that up at all. (laughs) Like, it's like, all right, Lord, I see that you're trying to work on some stuff in me. A lot more sanding that needs to happen in this area of my life. I hate waiting for the Lord. But we wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield for our hearts. Rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope into you. Man. One of my favorite verses, I would encourage you to put this one to memory. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope, God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a call to action here. We find our hope from God, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we overflow that hope to others. I was blessed to literally stand in this spot yesterday doing a funeral. And it was uh, someone who was part of the church a really long time ago. And uh, some of uh, her children came up, adult children came up and started just sharing. And man, did they bring hope. And they brought hope through the power of the Holy Spirit and what God has done in this lady's life and how that impacted all the people that were sitting in these chairs, this person's life, because of the Holy Spirit that was in their life. 
We can overflow hope by the power of the Holy Spirit to a lost, hurt, broken, busted up world that's out there. Now John, one of the closest followers of Jesus, he, man, he got this crazy glimpse into heaven and he wrote this in the book of Revelation. He says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. I cannot wait for this moment. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. (sighs) Who's ready to see that? Check this out. Then the one seated, 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 not standing, on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Jesus is coming back, friends, and he's going to make everything new, and our hope is found in that. So where can you bring hope? Where can you bring hope? I mean, the cliche would be, where can you bring where you live, work, and play? But how can we be a servant? How can we be a witness, be a people of forgiving, and just be hopeful wherever we're at? Thanks for listening to this message from Radiant Life Church. To get to know us better, check out theradiantlife.church. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.